Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on social media at FisheriesPod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Jody, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, and stickers on our Teespring store. Our guest today is Preston Christman. Preston was raised in Radford, Virginia, and earned his bachelor's degree in fisheries science from Virginia Tech in 2012. He worked seasonal positions for three years after graduating before accepting a full-time fisheries technician position with the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. After several promotions, Preston is now a fisheries biologist based out of the Rock Hill office, working primarily on support fish management. Preston's lifelong passion for learning and accruing knowledge led him to pursue the online Master's of Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences degree at the University of Florida while continuing to work for South Carolina. Preston and his wife, Bree, welcomed their second child in September of 2022, helping keep the second half of 2022 busy with his biologist promotion and finishing his master's program. Preston is an avid listener of the Fisheries Podcast and was a guest on the show back in August of 2021. And more recently, he has agreed to become one of the co-hosts of the Fisheries Podcast with his first episode coming out next week. Welcome to the podcast as both a guest and a host, Preston. Yeah, thank you for having me, both uh both as a guest and as a new co-host. Excited to get started. This episode will kind of catch back up with you since uh, see what's been going on in your corner of the world since August of 2021 and uh, kind of get a feel for uh, what you're hoping to, to do with some of your episodes on the Fisheries Podcast uh, going forward. Uh, but first, being stationed in Rock Hill, did, do you know some of the famous people that are from Rock Hill? Uh, I'm aware of quite a few of the the athletes that have gone on to the NFL, like Jadavian Clowney, um, few few other NFL players. Um, apart from that, I don't know. You mean you might know more about it than I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean Rock Hill claims to be the have the most NFL players uh, yeah. from that one city. That they have 21 listed on the Wikipedia page. But right. Vernon Grant is from Rock Hill. He's the creator or the the main guy behind Snap Crackle and Pop, the serial characters. Uh. So okay, <laughs> more people might know them than some of these NFL players. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, so you're originally from Virginia, but uh, you've been working in South Carolina for the past uh, eight years or so. Uh, is have you always been in that Rock Hill area, or is it somewhere that you kind of picked out while you're doing these internships and decide you like that area? So um, the the internships I worked were still in Virginia, and then I moved to Rock Hill to be uh, a full time technician back in February of 2015. So I'm coming up on, on nine years here and I have been in the Rock Hill office ever since. And then, you know, a few promotions, I went from a technician two to a three and then from a technician three to a bio two. And I am now a bio three, but luckily I've been very fortunate and have not had to move offices in that time. So, um, we, we got some additional positions that came in with some additional money coming from the, the state house, so we went from a total of four people in a region, and we are now up to six. So that has certainly uh, aided my my climb up the ranks. And so are there multiple offices per region, or is everyone kind of work out of your one office? Yeah. Uh, most regions have two offices. So we have one here in Rock Hill that has three of us, two biologists and a technician. And then we have a uh, our main hub offices in Florence, South Carolina, which is over closer towards uh, Myrtle Beach area. 
um, whereas Rock Hill is pretty much just directly below the state line from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, so we pretty much cover from Charlotte to Myrtle Beach. And so we have three people in that Florence office as well. So each state kind of does their own different uh, naming of their districts or regions. or uh, So the, the area you're in charge of, do you call that a district or a region? And, and how big is that area? Uh, we do regions. They they did districts um, back in the day, and then they went from eight districts down to four regions. And so we are just labeled as region number two. Um, and that covers 13 counties. Um, and that's uh, we cover a lot of Piedmont and uh, coastal plain areas. Um, we don't have as many mountains over in this part of the state. Um, so we cover, you know, uh, the Catawba River, Broad River Basin, all the way over to the pretty much the intercoastal waterway, just kind of right in behind the Myrtle Beach area. I mean, you're a, a management biologist, but are you tasked with rivers, streams, ponds, reservoirs, everything, or are you specific to just uh, small impoundments or reservoirs? Or uh, I guess what what type of water bodies are you working on? Yeah, uh, all of the above. I mean, we we work on. Um, a lot of we have several Piedmont River systems that we are responsible for. We have several large um, reservoirs. Lake Wiley and Lake Waterie are the largest. They're both about twelve, thirteen thousand acres. Um, then we have uh, plentiful small impoundments that are publicly accessible as part of our state lakes program. We also will will once state lake parks, um, sorry, once state parks have that have lakes if they can request and we can come in and and survey their lakes as well so we we are spend we spend a lot of time on small impoundments and then we have some free flowing coastal uh, blackwater rivers too um such as the, the little pd river the waccamaw river um so we kind of cover that whole that whole range no pretty much everything but trout waters is is in our area so you uh, landed there as a technician in 2015, and uh, eventually, uh, the bio said your your passion for learning and building knowledge drew you back to school. How did you settle on the online master's program at Florida uh, compared to alternatives of, I guess, going somewhere and, and studying for your free years and, and coming back or seeing what the job market was after you finished? Yeah, um, you know, I, originally when I got here to South Carolina, I did not think I wanted to go back and do get a master's. Um, and so my, my feelings on that changed, but by then it was kind of too late to really go back to school, um, for me and my family's situation. Um, we were, well, we didn't know it at the time, but then we shortly became pregnant after I started with our first child. So, um, that would have made it pretty difficult having gone back to school somewhere. And so we were, we were tied to the area with my wife's job as well. So I, I knew, if if I wanted to go back, I would probably have to be an online version. And so I started looking at schools, and there there are other programs besides Florida that offer online um, degrees in in the fisheries, and most of them are usually fisheries and wildlife degrees. And so, uh, Clemson University here in South Carolina offers one. So I was looking at Clemson, um, and then Oregon State, I believe, has one as well. Um, and then the reason I kind of, I was down to Clemson and versus Florida. And the reason I chose Florida was it was just slightly cheaper, just, you know, a few hundred dollars over the course of the whole thing. So not a huge deal, but then also Florida's was in straight directly fisheries and was not a fisheries and wildlife degree as well as Florida had been doing it a lot longer. And so they had a, a much more extensive course offerings, like probably in the, you know, the, I took, it was 32 credits for the degree. And in that time, I probably did not take half of the actual fisheries courses that they offer as, as online 
um, graduate level courses. So you could really tailor that um, degree to whatever you wanted, whatever strengths you needed to to improve. Um, and so I was able to do that and and really get what I needed um, in association with my um, advisory committee. And they helped steer me along to to where I needed to kind of round out some of my rougher spots and and get the get the best experience possible. It sounds like it was just like uh, uh, any other master's program, except you're just doing all your coursework online. You have a set number of courses uh, that you need to do every semester. Uh, and then you also had a, a project to work on. I guess, how does all that work remotely? Uh, do they just give you the freedom to pick any project you're currently working on at work? Or um, do they kind of push you in a direction of uh, these are types of projects that you should consider? Yeah, they were they were pretty lenient, and, and honestly, I kind of had a project in mind when I approached the 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 professor who would eventually become my primary advisor. Um, and I said, like, you know, I'm kind of choosing. I would think about this if I if I if you took me on, and he was a small impoundments guy as well, so he kind of jumped at at that, and he um, was excited to get started. So I really didn't spend a whole lot of time looking. Um, it is a, it's a non thesis degree, so that that kind of capstone project does not have to necessarily be a research type project for other students. Um, but mine, mine was, mine was almost as close to a thesis as you could get. Um, but other, other students can, can do something more along the lines of like a literature review as their larger project. Um, so then you kind of just have to keep up with your committee and they'll kind of, you know, give you have regular check-ins where you have to have project updates and things like that throughout, throughout your time. But then, yeah, like you said, it was just taking courses online. Um, I just did one, one a semester and it took three, three and a half years, I think, um, from start to finish. So, um, you know, while working full-time the whole time too. So it stayed pretty busy. You said you had a few projects in mind. You eventually settled on one. I, I guess, what was that project? The increase in popularity of catch and release largemouth bass fishing has has spread through the bass tournament industry mostly, but it's now kind of taken hold even at the grassroots level, and so people just really find it hard to to harvest bass anymore. And so that has been great uh, conservation efforts for our larger reservoirs and river systems, but it's been a bit of a detriment in small impoundments. And so now a lot of these small impoundments have become bass crowded. Um, and so we, most of those, the state lakes that are in my region are bass crowded. And so that produces a lot of stunted bass that don't get much bigger than 12, 14 inches uh, and they're skinny and, and unhealthy. And so we took two of those lakes to try to replace that lost angler harvest. And we went in with an electrofishing boat, removed a bunch of bass um, from both of those lakes to try to rebalance those systems to promote um, better quality bass fishing, um, at least as far as uh, average size and trophy potential in those reservoirs. I guess the the first part of the, the project that um, you need to figure out how many fish were in each one of these, each one of these lakes to, to eventually tell you how many fish to remove. Um, so how did you go about doing that marker capture? Did you just uh, clip some fins on the fish? Yep. So we went to both lakes. We did full shoreline circuits with the electrofishing boat. We, we fin clipped every bass that we caught. Um, and we kind of did separate marks for um, small bass that were like 200 millimeters and less because those aren't quite recruited to the gear fully. And then for bass over 200 millimeters as well. Um, and then we came back uh, about two to four weeks later and did another four, full shoreline circuit. And at that point started removing fish. And so we actually went with a, a, a different uh, removal criterion than most most places have done where they usually just remove fish that are in that target range size group that's crowded. 
and um, we used relative weight, so fish condition as a measure um, of where where to remove fish. And so we set a relative weight target of ninety, or sorry, ninety five. Um, and any fish that were uh, less than the condition of ninety five, we took out of the system. If they were ninety five or above, they got to stay. With the idea being that even if it was a small fish, if it was fat and healthy, that probably means it's growing like it should. It has a, an ideal mix of whatever genetics or aggression it needs to survive well in that system. So if we were to remove it just because it was only eight inches, uh, you might be removing a potential um, quality fish later on down its life. And so we we removed fish that were basically skinny of all length groups, even if they were large fish that could, you know, 16, 18 inch fish that had broken through the bottleneck, if they were skinny and underperforming, we, we removed them from the system too. A lot of the management biologists that are, might be listening it probably shocks largemouth bass uh, have a good idea of how their lakes are, I guess, numbers wise. Uh, do you know off the top of your head what your catch per hour was before at the beginning? Yeah, the, the catch per hour at both lakes was was right around 200 to 250 largemouth bass per hour for, for, for every transect um, at, before we removed fish. And at both lakes, it did fall um, to below 100 um, average. So, yeah. 200 250 that that is a pretty heavily populated largemouth bass so i can i can see why you were want to do the mechanical removal uh so yeah. you mentioned that uh you shock the fish and if they fell below that 95 relative weight criteria you were uh removing the fish um did you just uh move them to other lakes that weren't as heavily populated or did you just dump them in a pit and i guess did you uh pull any olus from the fish when you when you removed them from the lake? So, uh, you know, because most of our lakes are bass crowded, we really didn't have anywhere that needed a bunch of stunted, um, <laughs> poor performing fish. So we did just, just dig a hole and, and kill the fish. Um, we did not remove any otoliths. Um, that's something we don't do a whole lot in our small impoundments to do, to age and growth studies. Um, and so because we were dealing with so many hundreds of bass, we didn't really take that time. Probably should have in hindsight, but we did not. Uh, so you removed the fish uh, from your from your two lakes and then went back uh, a year and two years later to assess the populations. And I guess what did you find when you when you went back? So it's kind of at this point that the tails diverge for the two lakes. Um, one lake, which was a little bit larger, it was 40 acres and it was less severely crowded than the other. lake. both lakes came up with roughly similar largemouth bass population size estimates in those mark recaptures. Um, even though one lake is 40 acres and one is 25, they had roughly similar numbers of bass in them before we started removing. And so the larger lake, which was less crowded, uh, performed much better after the first year of removals. Um, bluegill catch rates almost tripled from year from year one or year before removals to after um, and so we we actually pumped the brakes and did not remove as many bass from that lake the second year because we thought we might have you know we had potentially done the rebalancing whereas the smaller lake which was more severely crowded we did we did not make much of a dent at all um, bluegill catch rate stayed pretty consistent throughout the whole study. Um, they did not increase like we would have expected had we been able to reduce the bass population below a kind of a critical point. And so um, we did another second year of heavy removals at the, at the smaller lake um, after after the first year. And so the bass condition kind of stayed the same at the uh, the small. Uh, 
that's the smaller lake and while it it slightly improved but it improved more substantially at the uh, the larger lake after we removed fish and um, bluegill condition as you expected if bluegill numbers increased the condition would go down and it did go down at the um, the larger lake as well i guess your project data ended in 2022 so you likely went back this spring and, and sampled these lakes again or um did you kind of see the same thing after you published the stuff the kind of following the same trends the uh, project was published and it came out uh, this spring in 2023 in the journal of the southeastern fish and wildlife agencies Um, but we did go back to both lakes this spring in 2023 kind of after this project officially concluded just to kind of get a another check and pretty much both lakes are about the same as where we left them the the larger lake does have much lower density of largemouth bass um, and and the ones that are in there their condition is improving um, quality size is, is still a little bit slow reaching where we, we hope, um, but hopefully given that improved condition, growth rates will improve and they'll, they will start seeing more kind of 16, 18, maybe some 20 inch fish in that system. And then the smaller lake is the same. It's just still completely stunted. And potentially if anything, we might've even made it worse. Somehow they seem to be stunning more at like eight to 10 inches instead of 10 to 12, like they had been. So <laughs> yeah, tale of two, tale of two lakes, I guess. I guess the, the whole bass sampling and bass shocking is is just one part of your your management toolbox um i guess what are some of the other uh, fish sampling that you do throughout the year i'm I'm sure it's not all largemouth bass centric there in south carolina yep you're right um so kind of our our typical annual sampling cycle um would be we're on our our larger reservoirs first doing spring electric fishing that's kind of in march and april and that does target black bass um it's mostly largemouth bass in our systems we do have uh, invasive Alabama bass that are continuously spreading throughout our, our basins. Um, and so we're, we're monitoring their impacts on largemouth bass and smallmouth bass and our native uh, red-eye bass species, which is the Bartram's bass. Um, Alabama bass will outcompete largemouth and then hybridize with the, the other species. So we're monitoring that spread. And then we, after our reservoir spring electrofishing concludes, we can move to our small impoundments. And there we're looking at bass, bluegill, red ear, sunfish, and black crappie populations. And then once summer rolls around, we've gone on to our using more of fish community samples on uh, rip, coastal river systems. And so we have a mix of uh, low frequency catfish sites and then high frequency fish community sites spread throughout various coastal rivers. Um, this lately we've been on the, the little PD river. Um, so you see a lot of big flathead catfish. You see a lot of cool coastal blackwater species that you don't normally get to see over here in Rock Hill. Um, and then once fall rolls around, we we are trap netting on one of our reservoirs for black crappie. Um, and then we move into gill nets for winter time on another reservoir, and that's targeting striped bass, blue catfish, um, black crappie, white bass, and then everything else that happens to to wander in. Um, and then kind of spread throughout the year, we're also doing habitat improvements um, that can be sinking Christmas trees. We just got um, a large uh, habitat enhancement fund funding for some um, mossback fish attractors that are going to be going into one of our large reservoirs to kind of replenish some of our fish attractor sites. So we're doing that throughout the year, too, and then just various odds and ends throughout the year. Yeah, so sounds like a lot of field work, and uh, a lot of data collection, and I guess another one of the things you'd you mentioned when you emailed me about stuff to talk about was that uh South Carolina when you first started kind of had a I guess not really a problem summarizing the data but it was just kind of a every man for themselves type thing generating your your management report so 
you saw you saw a problem and, and sought to to find a solution for that. So kind of guide us through uh, your management report uh, timeline there. Yeah, so this kind of all started back in the the work from home period in, in 2020. Um, I had, you know, I was responsible for various aspects of our data analysis. And so I took, a, had been using a combination of Excel and the, the AFS's FAMS software, and they just weren't really, it wasn't very efficient for me because I had a lot of different species and a multiple different water bodies to create, to, to be responsible for. So I was making a lot of plots and that took, that took way too long. So I wanted to streamline it. So I started playing around with R, which was not, I was not very experienced at the time. I've gotten more experience since then through, through um, grad school at UF. Um, and so I went in and made a big script to, to handle all of my data. And then once there, I was like, well, you know, maybe I can make this a little bit more user-friendly for people who aren't as, as fluent in R as I was then. And so I started making a user manual and then thought, well, if it's just going to be for my region, you know, maybe I can make this thing work for everybody in the state. Because like you said, we we had some uh, non-standard across the regions. And as far as our reporting, um, one example is of the four regions, I believe all four were reporting uh, catch rates for gill nets in four different formats. So like one was fish per thousand square yards of gill net. One was fish per net night and, and things like that. So, you know, just as just an example. So I took that script, wanted to make it user-friendly as well as universal to where it could work for everybody in the state so that anybody could use it. And our our, st- our data analysis and our plots, everything would start to look the same. I was then introduced to what is called a Shiny app. If you're not familiar, it's it basically can turn a, a script of our code into a, a what looks like a web browser interface for the user. Um, so they could just go on to what looks like a website um, – so I guess I was introduced to that at, at University of Florida in my fish population dynamics class uh, taught by Mike Allen. And so they, they had used them as ways to kind of show off some of the the projects that we were responsible for. And so I grilled grilled the TA, asked him a bunch of questions. He was the one that had built all those shiny apps and thought, you know, maybe I can give this a try. So I went in. Since then, uh, have have developed a, a shiny app. And so it looks like a web browser um, that that users can go on, upload their Excel file of their raw fish data, click run, and it will then analyze it. It will uh, give provide summary tables of you know minimum, average, maximum lengths and weights. It will calculate relative weight based on the species. Um, it will calculate PSD based on the species as well. Um, it will create all of the plots. Those are length frequency, weight frequency, um, and uh, we have a relative weight box plot plot as well for each of the PSD size groups. It will create age length keys if you have age data, and it will assign ages to unaged fish. It will create the plots for age and growth, um, such as age frequency. I have a cohort frequency plot in there. It will calculate mortality estimates, which was one of the trickier aspects of getting this whole thing to work, um, because you want user input to pick, you know, if they want to analyze mortality through a catch curve based on ages three through five or four through six. So I had to input something to where they could change which ages they wanted to use. That was a big hurdle to overcome. And so it can do all that. And then it'll, it'll generate all this output in one big massive Excel file and then one HTML file that gives all of the plots. And so now everything should be standardized. Um, everything looks, looks the same. It was run the same way, analyzed the same way. And so 
I'm in the phase, I guess I would call it the alpha testing phase where I, I am now testing it. I've run it through every bit of data I can find from my region and it, it is working. I'm now requesting data from other regions um, and then running it through the app. And so far, so good. There haven't been any major issues that have arisen based on you know, how various, the different regions kind of input their data um, into Excel. So nothing major has, has happened yet. And it's everybody's excited for it. Hopefully I can get it, you know, working as, as well as I want. And so eventually the end goal would be to, to it will be hosted on a server within DNR. All of the DNR biologists, they'll have a, a link that they just pull up in their web browser. They go to put their data in and then in a few minutes, get their, get their outputs handed back to them is, is the ultimate goal. And then that way everything, you know, should be looking the same for all of our reports moving forward. Sounds like a, a really ambitious project and you kind of, yes, <laughs> uh, I guess it might've been lost to the beginning of your, your answer, but uh, you said they didn't really have much experience in R when you started this whole thing, I guess, uh, how comfortable were you with R when you started first uh, now at the alpha testing phase? Uh, um, so I had been exposed to R and through one, one training program that we had here at DNR, and that was you know more of, of a fish population um, assessment. And then I had had a stats course through UF at that time. And so I think I had just wrapped that up when the, the 2020 shutdown happened. And so I was sent home and, you know, trying to find something to keep me busy. So that's when I started kind of creating the R script. And then, yeah, basically taught myself. And I, re- I, I will say I relied heavily on the... Um, introductory fisheries analyses with R book from Derek Ogle. I use the FSA package that he created um, heavily throughout all, all of this. Um, so they have the uh, relative weight equations already kind of put into, into that backend code. And they have lots of packages that help with mortality and um, assigning ages. They have all of that pretty much built in already into the FSA package. So I basically just unleashed the power of that and made it work for basically, basically just like whatever reservoir, It'll assign that and then assign the fish species to it, and then it will run, you know, whatever. Calculate relative weight, calculate PSD. If it has ages, it'll create the age length key and all that. Yeah, I'm sure it's quite the the undertaking, and uh, I'm sure all your your coworkers will appreciate at the end. All of you having a kind of uniform-looking management report to make make your supervisor's life a lot easier and not having to compare apples to oranges. Yeah, I sure hope so because, like I said, I – I guess I started working on the app itself in December of 2021. So it's been right at two years, obviously off and on, like I said, with the, how busy our, our sampling schedule is, it's kind of looks like, you know, it'll be like three to five months of not touching it at all. And then I'll, you know, find a, a slow month and I'll have four or six weeks where I can kind of work on it and make a lot of progress. And then, and I've asked for help a lot too. There's, there's, I pro, like I said, I'm still not an expert in R nor in shiny app creation. This has been a, a brute force attack um, through lots of Googling and lots of frustration, frustrated days uh, at the end of it where you just want to rip your hair out. So it's, I'm not, I'm not an expert. This was pure luck that I've made it this far. Yep. I'm sure most, uh, most people would probably have the same approach and the same, uh, uh, most people probably say it's pretty lucky that they've get get their R code to work most of the time anyway. Absolutely. Right, so we also mentioned at the beginning that uh, you're going to be taking over as as one of the hosts of the Fisheries Podcast, and your first episode comes out next week. I guess. Uh, I guess what kind of got you inspired to to answer the call we put out earlier this month, and uh, when we asked for for new hosts for the show. 
I've I've listened to the show. I think pretty much since it started, I've I've listened um, religiously. A big fan of it. Um, you know, I, I was kind of thinking just a few weeks ago. I was like, you know, I, now that's now I've been out of school for over a year, and I was like, you know, I kind of miss having the, having that extra bit of schoolwork to kind of keep me, you know, mentally focused on on some stuff, you know, just outside of work, um, but still, you know, fun and and challenging. And so I, I saw the call put out and said, you know what, let's let's go for it. Any sneak peek into the the type of guests or the the type of topics that you're hoping to bring to your episodes? You know, I I, I don't have anything specifically in mind. I think I'll probably start out, you know, locally. Um, I know our our the first guest that I'll be uh, interviewing, he's he's a local professor down our way, and he's been instrumental in helping me with this uh, shiny app uh, work because he's he's one of the managers of that FSA package now. So whenever I have our question or stats questions, I go, I, I pretty much go to him. He's a professor at a small local university, very close to our Florence office right across the street. So he's been, he's been very helpful. He'll be your first guest and, you know, I'll probably start branching out and into uh, some other regional biologist types in the area. Um, the Southeast, you know, I'm not limiting it to South Carolina by any means, but we'll probably start there and, and move out. And then um, I know at the, uh, the state AFS chapter meeting, I'll probably put out a call and I, I'm sure we have a very robust marine resources division. And I'm sure lots of those guys would love to come on and, and chat about the the work that they do too. So it won't won't strictly be freshwater either. Well, Preston, I thank you for coming on the show to introduce yourself and uh I guess talk about uh, kind of what you're gonna bring to the fisheries podcast. And uh so thank you for volunteering to step up and be a host of the show. But as a host that doesn't make you immune from the final five questions and uh, I didn't listen back to your your previous episode, so I, I don't remember exactly how these answers went the the first time you gave them. But uh, we're gonna move on to our our list of five questions we ask each guest, and we always start real simple with what is your favorite fish? Uh, I think last time I said robust red horse, so just for the sake of being different, I'll say uh, smallmouth bass because that is my favorite species to catch. Uh, you've had a couple more years added on to your career since the last time you were interviewed. So, so uh, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Ooh, I guess um, I would probably say being being published earlier this year was was a, a big goal because um, that it it it's always something I've wanted to do, and I was glad that it was you know as my um, my graduate research project was was the first one that that made it across the line. So that was fun. You might be in it, but what is your dream job or dream location to work in? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I'm living it right now. At least um, being a being a field biologist was always the goal. Um, you know, I think maybe eventually moving up to be more of a regional coordinator type, I think would be kind of the next step. I'm not still still unsure if I ever wanted to try to make a move towards a chief's office or anything, but but I think I'm I'm living it for right now anyways. If money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? Um, I guess my kind of passion project right now would be finding some way to to get the the message across about the the detrimental impacts of the the invasive Alabama bass. I know you guys have done an episode recently earlier this year on on that species so I won't go into it too much but uh, they're they're causing quite a problem and in my opinion they're probably the the biggest potential uh detrimental factor facing um black bass fisheries in in the southeast right now. All right. And if there is one point or one principle that you could have programmed in everyone's head, what would it be? Uh, I guess uh, in light of talking about the, the the shiny app and everything, don't be afraid to ask for help because I certainly had to, uh, both from real people as well as reaching out to Stack Overflow was a huge, <laughs> huge help in um, 
getting through a lot of this the the issues with both the the original R script and as well as then converting it into this this shiny app. So don't be afraid to ask for help. All right, Preston, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure hearing about all your work there in South Carolina and uh, also kind of a little bit of a preview of, of what, what's to come with the Fisheries Podcast. If people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, email's great. Uh, it's C-H-R-I-S-M-A-N-P at dnr.sc.gov. Um, you can find me on social media. Instagram is probably my most active account, and that is at Hokie Fish Biologist. But I'm on Facebook as well. I'm on Twitter, but that is solely for talking trash about college football, so I would not waste your time following me there. If anyone would like to get a hold of me or any of the other uh, Fisheries Podcast hosts, you can find us on social media at Fisheries Pod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the Fisheries Podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts and hoodies available on Teespring. I am Nick Kramer. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, don't be afraid to ask for help. <laughs>